Today's sermon comes from Matthew 4, verses 12 through 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The Dickerson household has a amazing dog named Zoe. And like all dogs, uh, most dogs have quirks. They can be pretty quirky. Zoe has a quirk. And it's this, that when she hears the garbage truck coming in the morning, she gets scared and she runs to her little nook in the kitchen underneath the counter. And sometimes she will actually get scared and run to this little nook in the kitchen before we can even hear the garbage truck. And that's because dogs have much more sensitive hearing than adults. So when she runs into that nook, in the kitchen, we know that the garbage truck is near. Life is full of those kinds of examples, right? Evidence that something is near. If the temperature suddenly drops, that's the evidence that a storm is near. Or if you're on a beach in the Pacific Ocean and the water begins to suddenly rapidly recede, that's evidence that a tsunami is near. Let's run this phenomenon through Matthew chapter 4. At the center of this passage is verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. That's what that word means. The king of heaven, who is king of this kingdom of heaven, is near. Now, what's the evidence of this? That's what this passage answers. What's the evidence that King Jesus 
is near. First, the evidence that King Jesus is near is that he is moving into unexpected places. Verse 12, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Jesus had been in Jerusalem. He had been in Judea with John the Baptist as ministry was happening. But as soon as John was arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, what we see here is the continuation of a pattern through Matthew's gospel to this point. And that is that sin and evil is moving people into places to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill God's plan. You say, why did Jesus withdraw into Galilee? Well, because John was arrested by an evil king. But verse 14 says, the reason Jesus withdrew into Galilee was so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus was pushed into Galilee by evil. John was arrested. But this was all part of God's eternal plan. God uses sin and evil to accomplish his purposes. And we've seen that over and over in Matthew's gospel. The same is true here. Now the question becomes, what's significant about Jesus withdrawing into Galilee? What's significant about it? Well, verse 15 tells us this was Gentile territory. It was the Galilee of Gentiles. But then notice verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Galilee was Gentile territory. And that meant that it was full of people from different nations who worshiped different gods and therefore had very immoral practices. About a hundred years before this account in Matthew 4, the inhabitants of Galilee were, were forced into Judaism and forced or compelled to accept circumcision their conversion, quote, to Judaism was less than wholehearted. They were forced into it. And so what you had was a people that really weren't changed. They, they really weren't a people of authentic faith. They, they probably added God to their list of gods. They still worshiped all these different gods. They still had all these immoral practices. And because of that, the Jews in Jerusalem looked down their nose at the Galileans. They were a hated people. The Jews despised the Galileans. And this is where Jesus started his ministry. And this is where Jesus spent much of his ministry, was among these despised and lowly Galileans. Everyone would have expected Jesus to spend his time in the capital city of Jerusalem with the Jews who had the promises, who at least on the surface worshiped God. 
and who at least publicly put forth a very clean and sanitized and buttoned up life. That's where people would have expected Jesus to center his ministry. And yet we see here that he goes to Galilee. God does his great work in unexpected places, among the lowly, among the despised. The light of Christ dawns in the darkest of places. And that's what we see here. Jesus moving into an unexpected place, a very dark place, a place covered in the shadow of death. And that's where he starts his ministry. That's where he begins to do his work because Jesus came to call not the righteous, but sinners who are dwelling in darkness under the shadow of death. Death is a tyrant. It's a tyrant that casts its shadow over everyone. Nobody escapes the shadow of death. And death here doesn't just mean the day that you stop breathing, although it includes that. Death is the shadow that encroached upon our world in Genesis chapter 3. Death of the healthy body that lives forever. Death of harmonious, life-giving relationships. The first marriage fell apart in Genesis 3. Death of meaning, meaningful and fruitful labor. Thorns and thistles would invest the ground in Genesis 3. So you see the death of the, the healthy body. You see the death of harmonious relationship. You see the death of fruitful labor. Death casts its shadow on our bodies, on our relationships, and on our vocations and on our work. No one escapes it. We live underneath the shadow of death. We live in dark places. And, and every one of you today can identify, whether it's current or, in, or recently, but you can identify a dark place. You can identify the shadow of death pressing in. In an issue of Christianity Today magazine, author and college president Krish Kandia wrote this. He said, one of my earliest memories is of holding my mother's hand on my first day of school. You think back to that, the first day you went to kindergarten. Scared to death, most people. I was so nervous as I entered the classroom that I wouldn't let go. The warmth of her fingers reassured me as my heart pounded in my chest. When I felt scared and alone, she was my lifeline and my security. I was reminded of that day a few years ago as I sat in a dark room once again holding my mother's hand. The silence was deafening as I strained to hear the muted words coming from the dehydrated mouth of a woman whose body had been ravaged by cancer. This time, my, my mother held on to my hand, 
seeking reassurance from its warmth in her time of distress. The comforter had become the comforted. He says, those were heartbreaking days. One moment I was praying for a miraculous recovery, the next for the end to come quickly. I was haunted by God's conspicuous absence. Have you ever been haunted by God's conspicuous absence? When the darkness becomes so dark, or when the shadow of death becomes so heavy on your situation or your circumstance, that God's conspicuous absence or silence is upon you. Turkish theologian Zaya Meral writes this, where is God when millions of his children are being persecuted in the most brutal ways? Why does he keep silent in the middle of persecution but speak loudly in the middle of conferences with famous speakers and worship bands? I have prayed many times like Luther, bless us, Lord, even curse us, but don't remain silent. Morale struggles eventually led him to consider Jesus' own experience. Listen to what he said. The greatest glory brought to God was not when he walked on the water or prayed for long hours, but when he cried in agony in the garden of Gethsemane and still continued to follow God's will. He did so even though it meant isolation, darkness, and the silence of God. Thus, we know that when everything around us fails, when we are destroyed and abandoned, our tears are the greatest worship songs we have ever sung. Jesus moves into the unexpected places of darkness and into the shadow of death because Jesus himself went into utter darkness. Jesus knows darkness. He knows the silence of his father. He experienced that. And because of that, he moves into those dark places when you find yourself there or into the shadow of death when you find yourself there. Jesus cried in agony. He wept in deep, deep sadness. Your tears in that dark place, your tears in the shadow of death are not evidence of Jesus being far away. It's evidence of Jesus being near. That's why Psalm 56, 8 says that he keeps your tears in his bottle. It's why Psalm 34 says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's near. which means that your tears may be some of the most intimate communication that you have with Jesus Christ. The evidence that Jesus is near is that he moves into unexpected places of your darkness, of the shadow of death. But second, the evidence of Jesus' nearness is that he is calling unexpected people. He's calling unexpected people. Verses 18 through 22, 
recount Jesus calling four of his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And what's striking about this call is that these men are despised Galileans. These men don't come from the up-and-coming future all-star rabbi schools in Jerusalem. These were common folk with all their superstitions and all their prejudices, having been hated Galileans. This is who Jesus called. It's not what anyone would have expected. But isn't this the pattern of Scripture throughout Scripture? God chooses Leah, not beautiful Rachel, to be the line that Jesus would come through. God chooses David and not his older brothers who were taller and stronger to be king. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. That was Galilee. That was the people from Galilee. That was Peter and Andrew and James and John. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that, here's the reason. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's a great example of this in Peter and John's life in Acts chapter four. By the time we get to Acts four, Peter and John had been going around teaching about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. And the Jerusalem council called them in because the religious leaders didn't like this. They were greatly annoyed by this. So they call Peter and John in. Peter and John testify, and, and this is how the council responds. In verse 13 of Acts four. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. The evidence that Jesus is near is not only that he's calling unexpected people, but that these unexpected people do unexpected things. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You and I are jars of clay. Plain, ordinary, not showy. And that's because it's never about you and it's never about me. It's always about Jesus. It's about his power and it's about the power of his call. It's important to understand that this is not the first time that these men had interacted with Jesus. Sometimes we read this and we think that, you know, this stranger shows up on shore and says, come follow me. 
And, and, and Peter and Andrew and James and John, just almost in a trance-like state, say, yes, we will follow you. We don't know who you are. It can, it's like, that. Well, what really was happening here? Well, about a year earlier, these men had been introduced to Jesus in John chapter one. When John the Baptist proclaimed, look, the Lamb of God, or behold, the Lamb of God. And it says that the disciples, well, at, not disciples at that point, but these men started to follow Jesus. They went to where he was staying. They spent the day with him. And so over the course of a year, they had an on and off relationship with Jesus. They had considered who this man was. They had investigated who this man was, but it wasn't until his powerful call in Matthew 4 that they followed him and left everything. They left their nets. That was symbolic of their whole way of life. They left their entire way of life. Not only that, but we read that James and John didn't just leave their nets, but they left their father, which was the strongest family tie. And so what we see is that this allegiance to Jesus is stronger than any earthly tie. Whether it be a vocation, they were fishermen. Or whether it be family, James and John left their father. And this strong allegiance to Jesus is not a product of self-effort. These men left everything because they were responding to the powerful call of Jesus. It is powerful. When Jesus calls someone, it is powerful. And these men are evidence of that. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lesbian English college professor and outspoken feminist, in this book, she describes her journey to Christ. Listen to what she says. In the pages that follow, I share what happened in my private world through what Christians politely call conversion. This word conversion is simply too tame and too refined to capture the train wreck that I experienced in coming face to face with the living God. How often do we describe our conversion that way? And then she goes on to say this, I didn't choose Christ. Nobody chooses Christ. Christ chooses you or you're dead. After Christ chooses you, you respond because you must. It's not a pretty story. Some of you have a conversion experience and you resonate with that and say, it was not a pretty story. It was tragically beautiful. but it wasn't a pretty story, but it was beautiful at the same time, tragically beautiful. Jesus is calling unexpected people to himself. 
That's the evidence that he's near, is that he's calling unexpected people to himself. Now, this has two powerful implications for your life. The first is this, that you, if you're here and you're in Christ, you were and are an unlikely convert. No matter what your story is, even if you grew up in a Christian home with Christ-loving parents, you are not in Christ because of their call. Or if your story is more like Rosaria Butterfield's and you came to Christ as an adult, you are here and you're in Christ because of Jesus' powerful call on your life. That's why you're here. A miraculous, powerful call that rescued you out of darkness, out of the shadow of death. When Jesus tells these disciples, you're gonna be fishers of men, they knew how to pull fish out of the water. He's saying, I'm, I am going to now use you to be an instrument to pull men and women and children out of the despair of death and darkness. That's what you're gonna witness. And the disciples did witness that. But I want you to hear that. If you're in Christ, you are and you were an unlikely convert. You're in Christ only because he called you. And his, his call is powerful. Second implication though, because Jesus is calling unexpected people to himself, don't ever write anyone off. Don't ever write anyone off. God can quicken a heart whenever he wants. Jesus can call someone to himself whenever he wants. That means no one is ever written off. Some of you have a story where people did write you off because of how dark your life got and the shadow of death seemed to consume you. And you're hearing in Christ because Jesus called you out of the darkest place in a place that was the shadow of death. Don't ever write anyone off. What's the evidence that Jesus is near? He's moving into unexpected places. He's calling unexpected people. And finally, he's healing in unexpected ways. Verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The gospel of the kingdom Verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. The kingdom is here. Remember, kingdom in Matthew's gospel is not realm, it's rule. The king of heaven, the ruler of heaven is here. The kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus Christ. Now, what are we to do with this? that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus healing every disease and every affliction. 
did Jesus heal every person in the region of Galilee? Of course not. He didn't heal every person. What's significant here is that it says he healed every disease and every affliction, meaning every kind of disease, every kind of affliction. Look at verse 24. The range of what Jesus heals. He heals the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. I mean, you have sickness here, you have diseases, pains in the body, spiritual oppression, epilepsy, paralysis. Whenever Jesus heals in the Gospels, he's never doing it as a magic show. Now, people were drawn to him. I mean, we see here, the crowds flocked after him because they all wanted their bodies healed. But when he heals, it is always a sign revealing his identity, which is his power and authority over everything that is wrong in the world and wrong in our lives. That's what's being communicated here. That Jesus has authority over everything wrong in this world and everything wrong in your life. And he has the power to heal it. We see this in, in Matthew chapter nine. In Matthew nine, there's some friends that bring a paralytic to Jesus. And they lay this paralytic before Jesus. And the first thing that Jesus says to this paralytic that gets laid before him. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes just blow up. They get really angry, right? They call blasphemy. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. So the scribes just get mad. But then you have these friends that brought this paralytic of theirs before Jesus. And, and you can imagine those friends thinking, Hey, Jesus, I, like, I appreciate that. But we brought him here to be physically healed. Jesus' response teaches us a lot about the purpose of his healings, his physical healings. Listen to how he responds in Matthew 9, 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He physically healed the paralytic to reveal that he had the power to spiritually heal the paralytic. In other words, there was healing in this paralytic that went well beyond his physical problem. It was the sin problem. It was the brokenness problem that Jesus is bringing a deeper healing. This paralytic experienced healing from Jesus in an unexpected way. He wanted to be physically well. Jesus did heal him physically, but he went so much deeper in his healing to the core of his heart, to his need of forgiveness, rooting out the sin in him, 
giving him hope. So when Jesus says here in Matthew 4, or when it says that he healed every kind of affliction, every disease, this was all about him revealing his identity as the one who brings deep healing. Not just physical healing, but spiritual healing. Probably one of our biggest struggles is believing, functionally believing that, that Jesus has authority over every bit of brokenness and sin and wrong that we experience. Now, the kingdom is at hand, meaning near, but the kingdom hasn't come in full. That won't happen until Jesus returns. So we live in this what's called now but not yet period where Jesus has the authority and power to heal everything like that. But in his wisdom, he doesn't heal everything. He heals some, but we know full healing comes when he returns, when the kingdom comes in full. But in this in-between time, he is healing. Oftentimes it's in unexpected ways. It's in ways we don't expect. And it's when he's healing you in unexpected ways, that's the evidence that he's near. You and I are great at WebMD. Y'all know what WebMD is? The doctors right now in the room are rolling their eyes because they've, they've experienced, and I've probably done it, where the patient walks into the doctor's office and says, hey doc, I was researching on WebMD and I diagnosed my problem. I've got acute bilirubin keratosis and I need you to give me this medication. Now what's the, what's the doctor gonna say to you? He's gonna say, do you mind if I take a look? You mind if I take a look? Oh sure, sure doc. And the doctor examines you and diagnoses the problem and it's not acute bilirubin keratosis. But you're probably wondering, is that a thing? No, it's not. That's the whole point. I don't know what it is. But the doctor diagnoses your problem and then prescribes medication. Jesus is healing you right now in very unexpected ways. How many of you would self-diagnose a problem in your life with control and anxiety and prescribe a heart-wrenching betrayal to heal you of your control and anxiety? Or how many of you would self-diagnose a problem or a lack of empathy and prescribe a deep, prolonged season of suffering 
to heal you of your lack of empathy. We don't often diagnose correctly, and then we certainly wouldn't prescribe the healing that Jesus brings. Right? He is healing you right now. That is Jesus' calling card. He's a healer. He is healing you. But he's probably healing you of something that you didn't realize you really had an issue with. And he's healing you in a way that is very unexpected. But he is at work. Jesus regularly brings healing to sin and brokenness we don't know we have in ways we could never expect. That's how our Savior works. By 2018, country music artist Walker Hayes had gotten sober and then tragedy struck. He and his wife Lainey lost their seventh child, Oakley, at birth. And he described that moment by saying, just holding a lifeless child, it's indescribable. I can't imagine a worse pain. And then he admitted that at that point, his sobriety was in jeopardy. He said, I'd been sober for three years when we lost Oakley. Three years he had been sober. I was ready to not be. He says, as soon as that happened, I was like, this is why you drink. When he lost Oakley or when they lost Oakley, he said at the time he was an atheist. He did the whole family to her and her husband's new church. And so they started to attend. And he said he showed up maybe the first time or he, he was, he had had a little bit too much. Started to dip back into things. And then he said one night late on the tour bus, he started reading a book that had been recommended to his wife. And it was The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. He said as he read her story, it matched his completely. It was almost like the same story. He just hadn't surrendered yet. He said he read it on the tour bus and he devoured it and he finished it by the time the sun came up on the bus the next morning. And as he reflects on his journey, it was shortly after that that he bought a Bible. He began to read it, continued to go to church, hearing the gospel. And as he reflects back on his journey to Christ, he said this, I know for some reason, losing Oakley led me to Christ. I would not know Jesus if I had not known the loss of my daughter. Healing comes in unexpected ways. The healing of Christ comes in unexpected ways. If you find yourself in an unexpected place of darkness, under the shadow of death, if you find yourself an unlikely convert, 
and you realize that, whether you have a story of growing up in a Christian home or you have a story of not darkening the door of a church until an adult, you were an adult. If you realize you're an unlikely convert to Jesus, and if you're, heal, if you're experiencing the healing of sin and brokenness, a sin and brokenness that you didn't really know you had, and you're experiencing that healing in unexpected ways, don't be discouraged, Jesus is near. The evidence of Jesus' nearness is his, is his movement into unexpected places, his calling of unexpected people, and his healing in unexpected ways. Let's pray. Father, we live in a land of darkness. We live under the shadow of death. And yet the light of Christ has dawned. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's here. It's not coming full yet, but it's here. Jesus, you are a healer. And you are healing us in ways that are unexpected. You're healing us of sin and brokenness that we may even be unaware of. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. What you have started, you will finish. And oftentimes the finishing of what you've started comes in those dark places, comes in the shadow of death. And yet that's where your light dawns. And that's where your light changes us, heals our marriages, heals our relationships, rids us of idolatry. And Father, your nearness and the nearness of your son, Jesus, is evident in this meal that we are gonna partake of, the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for this meal. Would you prepare our hearts for it, that we would be reminded that Jesus is near and that Jesus is healing. We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.